Today is the second Sunday in this three-week series focusing on making room for more. And last week, we looked at why we believe that God is inviting each of us to give in order to expand our physical space, to build a kids' center and expand this auditorium. If you missed that, I really would encourage you to take the time to watch it this week. It's better on the website than it is by podcast because it's very visual, last week's presentation. Uh, and I would really encourage you to do that because it's great for us to go on this journey all together. And then before you leave today, do pick one of these brochures up at one of the Making Room for More stands. As we watched the film last week, it was so moving to see something of the journey that the Lord has led us on over these many years. The apparently impossible challenges which he's invited us to join him in overcoming the thousands of lives which have been changed through the church that God has built here and the vision that he has given us for the next stage. God's already done more than all we could really ever have asked or imagined and he has so much more for us to join him in doing. Today we're going to look at a passage from the Bible which speaks into this next phase uh, in making room for more. And before I get into that, I just want to reflect for a moment on some of the qualities that you as a people so wonderfully demonstrate. In a time when the church is seen by many in our society as being outdated and irrelevant, with shrinking attendance and influence, God has graciously enabled Trent Vineyard to be a church which is quietly but powerfully saying, it isn't as you may think. God is on the move, his people are responding to his lead and making a real difference in society. This site, with its various buildings, has a presence in this city, which makes a statement. Not a, not a statement about buildings, but rather about the church of Jesus Christ. If you think the church is shrinking and outdated and irrelevant, have a look at what is going on here. What God has done through you gives other Christians and other churches hope. The fact that as a people we have believed that there is more and pressed into that through the obstacles which have challenged our progress, that inspires others around this nation and beyond to believe for more in their own local setting. Churches in the UK tend to be small, that's true, and we praise God for every single small church and every medium-sized church across this land. Not all churches are supposed to be large, like this one is. Like different plants in a garden, each church is called to be what God has chosen it to be. So you've got big plants and small plants and more beautiful and more you know, straggly, all sorts of plants, but basically a plant is called to be what it is called to be by God. So it's same with the church. But whatever kind of garden plant God has intended a church to be, there is still the potential for that church to be constrained from being all it can be. Its health, its growth can be restricted. Usually not at all intentionally, but churches can be held back by those in the church resisting new people being welcomed and included. By people in the church becoming content with what is, with little passion for what could be by people not being willing to take risks to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. 
settling with there not being enough space for those the Lord might be wanting to send and not being willing to invest their own money in making room for more people. Now, those things do not describe you. This church is as healthy as it is and it's as large as it is because we have refused to settle because you have refused to settle. You are a people who are willing to press into the challenges the Lord has presented to us and fulfill his calling even when it has not been easy. You are risk takers. You've taken significant risks at crucial points along the journey. It's in your genetic code. And there is always in all of us the temptation to say, couldn't we just have an easy life? You know, couldn't we just settle with what we have We've already, you know, got one of the largest church facilities in the country. Do we really need to stretch again to extend it even further? But you've never given in to those sorts of temptations. You've embraced the growth that God has sent. And over the years, those of you who've been around for a while, have stepped up heroically to the challenge of building space for those yet to come. You've sacrificially given some of your best away as well as the church here, we've given away leaders to plant other churches. And today, there are over one and a half thousand people worshiping in vineyard churches that we've planted out of here. In Melton, Newcastle, Cardiff, Bristol, Bath, Chester, Manchester, and Mansfield. Over one and a half thousand releasing great people to move and establish churches in other towns, other cities, isn't comfortable. Giving birth is painful, and you have again and again freely paid that price, knowing that so many others will get to experience some of the blessing that we experience here. You are generous. Not only do we have the money needed to do all that we do as a church because of the ongoing financial commitments of many of you, but the facilities that we enjoy were only made possible by generous people. We all know that most people live pretty much to the limit of their means. Not many people have a lot of money to spare. But over the years, many hundreds of you have sacrificially given to previous phases of our building developments and you've felt the pain of that, you know, probably the biggest financial sacrifice you've ever made in your entire life and you will have felt that. As I mentioned last week, we have given eight and a half million pounds to our building journey. That is flat out amazing and has inspired churches all over this country and indeed uh, elsewhere across the world. The theme is making room for more. It's a phrase which is borrowed from Isaiah 54 in the Amplified Version, and this is what it says there, Isaiah 54, verse 2. Enlarge the site of your tent to make room for more. And our tents today are portal frame warehouses, and we believe that God is speaking this word to us today. Enlarge your buildings to make room for more. Let's read that passage in the New Living Translation. Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, spare no expense, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Now, as I unpack these two verses, I'll dip into some other translations which will help expand what I'm saying. 
So the prophet Isaiah talks in verse 3 about your descendants, your children, and their children. In the Amplified Version, the full sentence there in verse 2 says this, Enlarge the site of your tent to make room for more children. At the time Isaiah wrote this, Middle Eastern nomadic families lived in tents, constructed of cloth made from goat hair, suspended over poles. And as the family grew, they would add more poles, they would make more cloth out of the goat's hair, of the goat herd that they had very often, and then they would get more guy ropes and more pegs. And the tent would continue to grow larger and larger as more space was needed to accommodate more people. The writer of Psalm 127 wrote, children are a gift from God. They are a real blessing. And culturally, the more children a family had, the greater the evidence of that blessing. God's design was that people, his people, would grow in number and be a blessing to the wider world. And here through Isaiah, God says in the message translation, you're going to need a lot of elbow room for your growing family. God was saying, I'm going to give you more children. And as I do so, I want you to make whatever extensions to your tent you need to in order to make room for them. And we believe the Lord really is saying very much the same to us today. Trent Vineyard, you need to expand your buildings because you're going to need lots of elbow room for your growing family. You know, God is passionate about children and young people. He longs for every single one of them to come to know him. And he's going to continue to send more, we believe, to be part of this family because he knows that we are passionate about them too. The quality of the facilities that we're investing in for this next generation really is quite extraordinary. And children's lives will be touched in profound and powerful ways as they come to Trent Kids, as they come to Trent Youth. And there will be many, of course, in their schools whose lives will also be touched by interacting with them. And of course, it's not just the almost 400 children and youth who are here each Sunday but the many, many more who will be here over the coming decades and indeed all those whose lives will be affected by those children. Isaiah goes on to mention the land. The Good News Bible says, your people will get back the land that the other nations now occupy. At the time Isaiah wrote this, he was referring to the physical land, the northern part of Israel, which became known as Samaria. And God's people had experienced other nations invading parts of their land and occupying it. And through Isaiah, God's saying, I'm going to open the way for you to take that land back. Now, we live in a kingdom, the United Kingdom. But we also know, don't we, that we live in the middle of a kingdom battle. This nation has the fingerprints of the kingdom of darkness in every arena of society. There is poverty loneliness, broken families, injustice, slavery, abuse, and the list would go on. And God's expressed desire is that his kingdom would come, his will would be done in the UK as it is in heaven. Where there is poverty, that there will be provision. Where there's loneliness, that people would experience a warm embrace. Where there are broken families, that healing would come where there is injustice that it would be broken, where there is slavery that people would be set free, and where there is abuse that it would cease. 
When Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God broke in wherever he went. The sick were healed, the outcasts were embraced. Where people were bound in so many ways, Jesus set them free. And just as the kingdom of God broke in with Jesus, so now it is through us, the church, the whole church across the world, that his kingdom is extended. His rule, his reign, his nature is expressed through us, his people. Verse 3, your people will get back the land that the other nations now occupy, that the, the land that the other kingdom occupies. Through the children of this church, through the youth, through the rest of us, Nottingham will continue to experience the love and the nature of God expressed in wonderful ways and will increasingly be a city uh, where the kingdom of God takes back the land that is currently occupied. As we give to this next phase of our building journey, our investment is going to make a significant contribution to the expanding of the kingdom of God in God's will being done in Nottingham as it is in heaven. Verse 2 reads, Enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, and spare no expense. At the Lord's prompting, we are going to respond to his call to us to enlarge our house, to build an addition, to spread out our home. And Isaiah said to them, spare no expense, with an exclamation mark. The English Revised Version says, make your tent bigger, open your doors wide, don't think small. The message translation says, spread out, think big. So don't think small, think big, spare no expense, all with exclamation marks. As we seek to make the plans for expansion a physical reality, we are doing just that. We are not thinking small. The kids' center we're building is not a little porter cabin classroom, but rather a phenomenal purpose-built facility with amazing rooms and equipment, which will accommodate hundreds of children. We are sparing no expense. It's not that we're throwing money at this and spending excessively on fancy details, but rather we are not letting the challenge of the cost hold us back from going for what we feel the Lord is leading us into. We are refurbishing a building which is currently an eyesore, uh, it's clad in corrugated asbestos cement sheeting. It's got signs saying danger asbestos. It's got a fence built around it so you don't bump into it and all that. It's, we've got to do something with it. We're taking that derelict building and creating a wonderful kid center. What we're doing is spending money wisely. We are building what is, in fact, the most cost-effective kind of building. What in the building trade is rather unglamorously known as a portal frame shed covered in crinkly tin. That's its, that is its description within the building trade. We intend to open our doors wide and we're not thinking small. We're not going to be constrained by what people may think is possible. We're going to faithfully follow God's leading knowing that God can do, he already has, and will continue to do more than we ask or imagine. That phrase, spare no expense, speaks of not allowing resources, not allowing finances to dictate what could happen. It also speaks of the attitude which many of you have evidently demonstrated over the many years as you have not thought small, 
as you have spared no expense and have given to build the facilities that we now have. The invitation is now for us to, to press on with that same risk-taking faithfulness to enable this next phase, to move the plans and the drawings of the Kids Center and the auditorium expansion from paper ideas into physical reality. The message translation ends this section in verse four with this. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. You're not gonna come up short. And though in the original context, the application of this was a little different to our situation today, I take that as a reminder of God's faithfulness and an encouragement to all of us to not let fear of not having enough hold us back from giving generously. Things will happen on this site which had you not given would not have been able to happen. Lives will be touched. Many, many individuals will experience the love of Jesus as they come into these spaces. And we all know that facilities, which is what the Americans would call buildings, right? Facilities are, are not the goal. But facilities facilitate what God is doing and they provide space for his people to flourish in their calling. As you know, if you have read the brochure or you've seen the film um, or you've watched it or whatever online, we'll be setting apart 22% of the money that we give to be given away or spent on activities and things which benefit those outside our church. If we give the whole 2.4 million, that's gonna be over half a million pounds. And as the senior leadership team thought about what we might devote some of that money to, we landed on two main focuses with a third, which I'll mention in a moment. Now to be clear, there will be other things which we will, we will invest in from the set-apart pot, but we are particularly excited about these two. The main focus for making room for more is children, and we thought it'd be wonderful alongside building for our own children and those children yet to come, to invest significantly in children, locally and also abroad. Firstly, locally. Over the years, the work we do as a church through areas like the Arches and fostering and adoption has contributed to close relationships with lots of service providers and particularly with the city council. So Helen Murphy asked one of their senior politicians, David Mellon, who's responsible for children's services. He, he knows us very well. She talked with him, she know, he knows us very well and knows the city very well. And Helen shared with him our desire to be a real blessing to the children in the city of Nottingham. And she asked him in what ways a gift, as yet unspecified and quantified, but essentially certainly tens of thousands of pounds, how that could perhaps facilitate valuable work with children which the council are struggling to do or to sustain given the cuts that they're facing. And this is what he said. Hello, um, my name's David Mellon. I'm a city councillor here in Nottingham, uh, and I'm an executive councillor responsible for early years and early intervention. That means children, really. Um, and uh, it's great that um, we work in partnership with Trent Vineyard on a whole lot of issues, and we're really uh, 
grateful for that relationship and think it's really valuable to the city and the city council in particular. So there's three possible ways that that money could help. Uh, first of all, we have a book gifting scheme uh, to give to children monthly uh, to their homes, a children's book from the age of when they're born through to five. We know that many families in Nottingham are hard up for funding and perhaps children's books, which are quite expensive actually, are not the priority. Uh, our scheme, we've got about 3,000 children on it now, uh, delivers a book through the door every month and so by the time the children are five, they've got a library of 60 books, which hopefully they've read with their parents or their grandparents or whoever's babysitting. We have a real issue with children being behind in their learning and their communication skills when they get to school. This is a real contribution towards improving those skills so that children come to school with better skills. It's been proven to work in other countries and we're adopting it here and our aim is to get all 21,000 children on this scheme. The second option was uh, our domestic violence helpline. We know that there are lots of women and children and sometimes men who are trapped in a situation where there's domestic violence going on. That doesn't happen just within office hours. So our 24-hour helpline is really, really important at the moment. That's under threat of cut because of lack of funding. The third option was uh, a fund that we have called No Recourse to Public Funds. There are some uh, adults and children and families in this country who don't qualify for any benefit whatsoever. They are reliant on handouts, uh, not least from Nottingham City Council. We have a fund uh, where we give small grants for people's heating, lighting, food. Uh, that budget is about £250,000. Last year we spent £600,000. We overspent that money by more than double. And so a contribution towards that or, or, or a scheme uh, worked at, at uh, the Arches might be a similar scheme, uh, would be something that we'd also be keen to support. Well, it was a lovely surprise, first of all. Um, I couldn't quite believe it uh, that that was a possibility. Um, and I think it means to us that it's more than just words. It is uh, a real contribution uh, where we need it uh, in order to, to achieve the aims that we have for the city. So really pleased, really grateful, really humbled. As further work is done to put feet on these ideas, we want to ensure that the money we invest will add real value as opposed to substituting funding things which the council uh, should be prioritizing. So the specifics of how some or all of those ideas are invested in will be worked on with added value clearly in mind. The second area we want to give to is work with children in India. As many of you know, Cat and Mary were sent out of here from Trent 10 years ago, and they've established a work among the poorest of the poor, which is absolutely amazing. And as a church, we provide ongoing support for them, but we would love to invest, again, tens of thousands of pounds in Love the Ones work, and uh, once converted into rupees, this money will make a phenomenal difference to the work that they are doing. As many as 500 million of India's total population live below the poverty line. These families live in standards that are considered amongst the poorest in the world. 
For children in rural communities in particular, illness, disease and malnourishment are part of everyday life. With one in 13 children born in India dying before their fifth birthday. For those children who do survive, life is difficult. Access to healthcare and education is limited. Over 60% of the child population don't have access to basic medicines and medical facilities. India is ranked number four in the top 10 nations, with primary age children being classed as out of school. For the majority of families and children, life is about survival. Love the One exists to break the cycle of poverty and suffering for the most voiceless, exploited and marginalised children in India, focusing on health, education and childcare. The work of Love the One's school and epic centres is at the heart of all that they do. The school and the epic centres are places where the country's poorest and most vulnerable children can grow, learn and develop in a safe and loving environment. Without access to these centres, children will be left home alone or cared for by siblings, exposed to the risk of neglect, abuse, trafficking and disease. Love the One provides free transport to and from the school and epic centres and takes a holistic approach to child welfare, providing both free education and healthcare. Lucy, a primary school teacher from Leeds, recently spent some time working with Love the One team. Here's her story. Um, I've always had a passion for India and after visiting lots of times um, the work that Kat and Mary are doing with Love the One, when I heard that they were starting a school, um, I just had to be a part of it. So me and my family went and gave four months to go and work out there. So as a primary school teacher in the UK, um, I find that so often we take things for granted. Classrooms are fully stocked with resources, all children get free education and children have a child-centred learning experience. However, this is not the case for children in India. Schools are often a place where children are controlled and fear is used to make children do things. Children have to copy for hours a day, sometimes up to 10 hours copying the same sentences but not even knowing what it actually means. However, I wanted to go and help the Love the One School develop a place where no child is ever hit, where children can learn through creativity and investigation and fun. And this is a really radical way of teaching out there and this is something in Arissa that has never been seen before. So I had the opportunity to go and visit some of the school children in their homes which are often slum shacks or really small buildings where six or more would cram in and sleep and all live together. And to see the difference of the children playing in school, having freedom, being able to talk to adults and teachers and confide in them compared to their relationships with their parents at home where they were often quite nervous or they would have small places to play um, and have to complete lots of household chores. It's just amazing to see the difference in the children and the difference that them coming to school makes in their life. They build their confidence and build their self-esteem and just give them a chance to learn and play in a really fun and engaging environment. The work of Love the One, their school and epic centres is rewriting the future for many, many children. Access to an education and healthcare will not only transform the lives of this generation, but impact the lives of many more in the generations to come.
We would also like to make a substantial gift to Tear Fund, who are responding to the current crisis, which is uh, going on in East Africa, in South Sudan, Northern Kenya, Somalia, and Southern Ethiopia. The situation is now critical. Widespread drought and conflict have left 16 million people on the brink of starvation and in desperate need of uh, food and clean water. And according to Tear Fund, women and children are suffering the most, with more than 800,000 children under five being severely malnourished and without immediate treatment, they're at risk of starving to death. So Tear Fund's already on the ground, working with local churches and others in those countries to provide humanitarian assistance, sanitation, and health education to vulnerable families. So we would like to send Tear Fund a substantial gift as soon as we can. As we look forward to what the Lord is going to do with us, we want to bathe this whole project in prayer and fasting. And I would like to invite you to join me in fasting at various levels of your choice for the next two weeks, beginning tomorrow, in the lead up to the gift day in two weeks' time. Now, fasting may be new to some of you. Uh, maybe you've heard of giving something up for Lent, going without something in Lent, which we're, of course, currently in. But let me just give you a bit of context. In the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus giving guidelines about how to go about praying, giving, and fasting with the assumption that praying, giving, and fasting are all part of Christian devotion. And in that passage in Matthew 6, he doesn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast, don't do it like the Pharisees who go, you know, who fast for men to see. Don't make a song and dance about it, just get on with it and you'll be rewarded. Sometimes it's clear that God's people fasted because they were asking God for guidance on some major decision. So in Acts 14, we see Paul and Barnabas, who had by that time planted some churches, following the same process as happened when they were sent out, fasting and praying as they sought God's will on who to lay hands on, who to appoint as leaders. And it says there, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church with prayer and fasting. So they took the time to do that because they had a specific need. And as each of you, assuming this is your church, if you would prayerfully consider how much the Lord might be asking you to give to this personally, fasting will help to attune you to his leading. I want to look with you briefly at an account from the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, chapter 8. A few hundred years before Christ, the temple which Solomon had built in Jerusalem in about 1000 BC was destroyed by Israel's enemies. So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came. And then the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, became the major world superpower of the time. And Cyrus, uh, who God used as his servant, he wasn't actually a believer, but God used him. The Persian king then allowed some of the Jewish people to return to begin rebuilding the temple. And then his successor, Darius, allowed that building to continue. So Ezra has his permission to go to Jerusalem with a group of people to lead them in this incredible building project which they completed against all sorts of opposition. You might want to read the book of Ezra. But in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, it says this, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children. 
So echoing that, I'm inviting us to, as a people, to fast so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey. The journey that God is leading us on will be challenging in all sorts of ways, and there are a number of things which could trip us up. Uh, In the next verse, it mentions protection from enemies on the road. You know, our enemy, Satan, is not at all happy with what we're doing. This development has the very real potential to multiply our impact, the impact for the kingdom of God in Nottingham and way beyond it. The lives of thousands of people could be changed in the coming years. Thousands, indeed, could be in heaven one day who otherwise wouldn't be because we are able to accommodate more people and more ministry, not to mention the kingdom impact of the money that we'll be giving away. One of the key ways that Satan often tries to undermine advances in God's kingdom is to sow strife and division and hassle and difficulty. So between husband and wife, between friend and friend, you, you know, suddenly these people have fallen out. So what's going on? Well, that's part of Satan's schemes. And uh, we need to be aware of that. You know, there's hassle, difficulty uh, between people and leaders. All sorts of things can happen. Let's not be unaware of Satan's schemes. When that sort of thing happens, if it does, then let's recognize it as the work of the enemy and pray against his influence in the church. Verse 23 says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. They fasted and they prayed, they petitioned God, which means they asked him for his provision and his protection and God answered their prayer and they got to Jerusalem. Verse 31 says this, on the 12th day of the first month, We set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. And then, indeed, he continued to protect them from opposition during the building of the temple. So as we look to God, as we embark on this new development, I would just like to encourage us all to consider how we might join together in fasting. There are different examples Uh, or the examples of different levels of fasting in the scriptures. So we have partial, normal, and absolute. Partial, for instance, while Daniel in the Old Testament sometimes fasted at a greater level than this, we find him in Daniel chapter 10 telling us, for three weeks I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. So basically it's some sort of Uh, restricted, a reduced diet, a not very entertaining diet for a period of time. Then there's normal fasting, which would be not eating any solid food, just drinking water or drinking some other drink. So this is the most commonly found fast in the Bible and was practiced by many people in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And other drink might include, you know, Diet Coke or juice or cup of tea or something. Not eating solid food, I should point out, doesn't mean you can put your sticky toffee pudding and ice cream in the liquidizer, okay? But basically, it's going without food, even if you do drink some other stuff. And then there's absolute, which is basically going without food and water. So what does that achieve? What on earth is the point of that? Because it feels somewhat foolish and a somewhat unproductive activity. Well, it's a means, as we just saw, of humbling ourselves before God. While we're fasting, the Lord has our full attention. We're submitting to his will. It's a tangible way of declaring that God's interests are higher than our interests. 
it puts us in the appropriate place of recognizing God's leadership, that his agenda is a higher priority to us than our agenda. It's a deliberate way of surrendering to his will and implicitly saying, your will be done. Now, when we're fasting, for many of us, the answer to the question, what is of highest importance in your life, is very easy to answer. Food. You just, that you're going to have this awareness. Food is the most important thing. Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that there are more important things than food, like doing the will of God. Going without food helps focus us on what really matters. Now, don't be put off from doing it. We think, well, I haven't got time to pray. You may not have time to pray. I would increase, uh, encourage you to increase the time you pray over the next two weeks. But especially, and do that especially on days you fast. But even if you can't, fasting is a form of implicit prayer, of nonverbal prayer. It's like your body is silently or sometimes not so silently interceding. That, those sounds you'll hear late in the day, gurgling sounds and rumbling sounds going on. Just, it's effectively your body saying, Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. To all that you have prayed. We may or may not feel particularly spiritual. Some people say, well, I've tried fasting. I didn't, it wasn't a spiritual high, so I'm never doing that again. It's not supposed to be a spiritual high. Some people have incredible experiences while fasting, but for most people, it's not that at all. I find personally it helps me to pray. It kind of reminds me. I've got a constant awareness. Something's wrong. What's wrong? Oh, yes, I'm hungry. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing it for. But it's not by any means a constant spiritual high. Most times you just feel hungry. Let's just finish with looking at some practicalities involved in fasting. If you're anything like me, you find it hard to add any more activities into your already busy schedule. And if I was talking about, you know, I want you to read six chapters of the Bible every day for the next two weeks, you might say, well, where am I going to find the time? You know, I've actively got to add something into my schedule, something that takes time. Now, fasting is in some ways very much easier than that. You don't have to do anything extra. You just don't do something. The activity of fasting doesn't take up time. It actually saves time, time that you might otherwise spend preparing or eating food. And it releases time to pray or even to do something else. So that's the good side of fasting. The bad side includes this discomfort that it involves. I find that on a day that I've planned to be fasting, as soon as I get downstairs in the morning, even before I've remembered I'm not eating that day, I feel more hungry than I do on other mornings. In fact, it's so weird, subconsciously something's going on. I wake up thinking, oh, I've got hunger pangs before breakfast. No, no, it's the day I'm fasting. And some mornings, you know, I could uh, sleep in, I could get up late, I could skip breakfast, breakfast and hardly notice it, but not on those days. And I reach for the fridge, I open it up, and I'm like, oh, no, it's Thursday, and it closes again. And then perhaps I'll come in here into the warehouse and go into the pastoral office, and there's a massive box of chocolates that someone's just delivered, and it's like, oh, my goodness, I love chocolates. Reach for them, and then I realize, oh, no, I'm not eating today. And, and uh, But I'm hungry, you know, I'm hungry. And I don't get any less hungry through the day. Whoever it was who applied the English word fast to this activity has obviously never done it. <laughs> the day just drags on. You're just looking forward to your body being feeling right again, having a meal sometime down the track. So when you fast, you feel hungry. 
Now, not everybody will be able to fast for an extended period of time. Fasting is so much easier, it seems, for some people than for others. And it's not a competition to see who can go the longest without food. It's an expression of devotion to God and a commitment to His purposes. For some, to fast for a short time, like even just miss lunch, would be a major sacrifice. For others, fasting for an extended time really costs us no more. It's important to remember fasting is not legalism. It's not a legalistic set of rules. It's between you and the Lord. So it's more a matter of your heart than it is of counting minutes and calories. The degree to which you might be able to participate in this is very much dependent on your life situation. If you're a breastfeeding mother, you might be able to go without a dessert or eat a boring meal. If you have a medical condition like diabetes, you'll need to be very careful before you adjust any of your food intake. You should talk to your doctor before you consider doing that. Uh, one way which I find helpful, and so do many other people, is to go without food for 24 hours. Basically, have dinner, and then don't eat anything until you have dinner the following night. So more, strictly speaking, at 23 and a half hours. But I'm not counting by the time, you know, <laughs> dinner time is ready. God is not worried about 23 and a half, 24, whether you had a cup of tea with sugar in it or not, all that sort of thing. You might, though, prefer to fast in other ways, or even in more than one way. You might fast for a, you know, a couple of days, and then you might think, well, I'm going to go without social media for 24 hours. How many of you have ever done that? No Facebook flicking, no Twitter, no Instagram. What about fasting for 24 hours? No one's going to miss you, honestly. You'll be able to catch up when you get back. Or go without television or uh, social media, or shopping, or chocolate, or internet use, or, or something for a period of time. Whatever your situation, I would encourage you to be like the woman who broke a very expensive bottle of perfume and anointed Jesus. In Mark 16, sorry, Mark 14, verses 6 to 8, you'll find the story. And Jesus says, she has done, he's defending her to those who are attacking her for doing this waste of, wasteful thing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She did what she could. So remember, Jesus said, she did what she could, and she did it for me. She did what she could, and she did it for him. And the same applies to fasting. Do what you can, and do it for him. In the brochure, you will see, and if you haven't got one, do get one, but you'll see there's an envelope page, and on that page behind it, it's got prayer points, things to be praying about through this next two-week period. And on the back of that sheet are the dates of the next two weeks. And so you might want to tick or circle, as I have here, the days you're going to be fasting, and then you can, it just tears straight off. That's a perforated thing. You can just tear it off, stick it on your fridge, or stick it somewhere where you'll be able to not only look at the prayer points, but also check whether you're fasting that day. So that's basically the invitation, and uh, I would love to see as many of us as possible go without something in this next two weeks to really pray, really seek the Lord, not only personally for what we might give, but also for the whole project to pray for everything that the Lord would bring us together, and this, what is now on paper, would in a number of months be a reality.